Are we alone in the universe? And if not, what does that mean? And what would aliens be like? And what would they want? To destroy us? To bring peace? To gain knowledge? Sounds like it's time for episode 81 of Pop Art, the podcast where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, boy, this is really going to change the Missed Universe contest host, Howard Kastner. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guest, writer Kate Duffy, who has chosen as her film, the hard sci-fi Jodie Foster film, Contact. Well, I have chosen the soft sci-fi Brit Marling film, Another Earth, both films about first contact with another planet. Before beginning, I want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Kate, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? Hi, uh, my name is Kate Duffy. As Howard just said, I am a writer for television drama. I've written on two, uh, actually three different shows now. Most recently, Breacher on Amazon. And I'm happy to be here and excited to talk about some art with you. Fantastic. Well, with that, let's go to your selection, and that is Contact. For some information about the film, Contact is an American science fiction film released in 1997. It was directed by Robert Zemeckis and written by James V. Hart and Michael Goldenberg from a story by Carl Sagan and his wife, Andrewian, based on the 1985 novel by Carl Sagan. It stars Jodie Foster, Gina Malone, Matthew McConaughey, David Morse, Tom Skerritt, James Woods, John Hurt, William Fitchner, Angela Bassett, Jake Busey, Rob Lowe, Jeffrey Blake, Max Martini, I love that name, <laughs> Stephen Ford, and as themselves, Jay Leno, Larry King, and Andrewian. As a young girl, Ely Arroway dreamed of making contact with another world and alien species. As the adult Dr. Ellie Arroway, she works for SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The money men in government think it's a ridiculous pursuit. Until one day, Ellie and Seti do make contact, receiving plans from another world to build a machine that can transport a person to meet the alien race. But what does it all mean, and who will make the journey? Before beginning with the film proper, I thought we would begin by discussing two topics. One is the idea of films about making alien contact. Why do you think this is so interesting to audience members, and why is it interesting to you? It's explained fairly succinctly in the movie about how it seems like it's this innate human thing, regardless of whether you follow on the lines of religion or science or somewhere in between, that we just always want to know what else is out there. Are we alone? Just a sense of purpose, meaning, and the fear of being isolated and alone. I think that's something that we can all identify with, even if we can't explain exactly why we all feel that way. I think the movie does a really fantastic job of conveying that. I think you said something very interesting, among other things, that the fear of being alone, that we have a hard time believing that we're alone in the universe. There does seem to be something innate in us that says there's got to be something more. And whether religion can explain it or science can explain it. But not having made any contact with something or someone out there doesn't seem to have dampened our interest. It's interesting you say that you boil it down to the being alone because it opens another question of why does having another thing out there equal meaning? Why does company equal meaning? <laughs> That's a very good observation. Even if we did make contact with people from another planet, no matter how advanced they are, is that really going to explain the existential questions of why are we here or why is there something instead of nothing and what is the point of everything? Pity conversation for a podcast about movies. <laughs> 
Yeah, that, that's a really good point. We do it because we want answers, but there's no guarantee that we're going to get answers by doing it. Yeah. Is the asking and the dreaming and the hoping, is that the thing that gives you meaning? Because once you find the answer, you're just going to want to know another answer potentially. Is it the journey or the destination that we're really after? The other topic I wanted to bring up is women in science fiction films. Both of these films do have females as central characters. Even though I can name a number of films with no women of significance in them in sci-fi films like 2001 A Space Odyssey, I've often found that it's actually in sci-fi films that one can especially see women front and center or as a major part of the story. And they aren't just playing damsels in distress or playing second fiddle. They're scientists, they're astronauts, doctors, nurses. We can see that in movies like Star Wars and Aliens. Genre, in spite of the fact that people think this is a manly genre, is filled with female characters and female leads. Do you have any idea of why that might be? First off, a lot of sci-fi generally tends to lean towards future or near future where it's an idealized version of ourselves as a species. In the ideal world, the sense of a human is a human, we like to imagine ideally that we're going to get to that point. But I also think that when you're focused on science, a brain is a brain and it's logic and it's all of the, the personal and emotional stuff and our own fallacies that makes us view different genders or races or, or ages with prejudice. It's gone because science is science. When you're asking big picture questions like being alone in the universe or you're Ripley fighting an alien on a ship, it just sort of opens that question of like, well, what does it matter? <laughs> what chromosomes a person's have? I think that's a very good point. I think it also is something that actually started during the golden age of movies, especially the 40s and 50s when science fiction was coming around, because in those days, the female audience was very important. If you made a movie during that period and even before, you wanted the women to come. So to do that, usually they would have a woman in the movie often the love interest of the male central character but but not always it was even to such that if they adapted a book or a story or something that did not have a woman in it they would actually put one in mm -hmm. for example war of the worlds there isn't a woman like that character in the book okay but, and how do you justify having women in sci-fi films well you have to make them scientists astronauts doctors nurses otherwise there's really no reason for them to be there. And these were often B-films because before 2001 A Space Odyssey sci-fi films were rarely A-films. But then in the 1960s there was this deep wave of misogyny that entered storytelling in Hollywood. Hmm. But sci-fi was one of the few areas where you could still have a female lead or have them play major roles and could get a crossover audience. Star Wars probably one of the biggest influences on this with Princess Leia, but that, of course, was heavily influenced by movies of the Golden Age. But then you have Aliens and Terminator, The Hunger Games, Gravity, Annihilation. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Especially Annihilation. and That's a fantastic movie. <laughs> Why did you choose this film? It's been one of my favorite films for a long time. I have not seen it prior to watched it last night for the podcast easily 15 years. I came across an article shortly before you asked me about picking a movie and it was about the 25th anniversary of Contact and I was like oh my god that movie yes. It always spoke to me because it came out when I was a kid. I saw in theaters when I was a kid I remember very distinctly even though I was quite young. I was super into space. I think I saw it right around the time I did my first space camp. I had never seen a, a lead female character being a scientist and her primary character traits have nothing to do with her gender. It's all about her passion. It's all 
about her relentless quest for knowledge and her intelligence. And those are the things that define her as a person. I kind of idolized the Dr. Arroway character for a long time. And it just sort of made me like, oh, I can do this too. (laughs) So it's always had a special place in my heart because of that. When you talk about it's a female character that's not really defined by a gender, some of the things we'll talk about later on is how some people wanted to make it more about her gender. But even Carl Sagan in the original book, a lot of this was taken out and removed and was more focused on her as a scientist rather than on her as a woman. So you're right, that is a bit unusual. It's very refreshing. And that's part of the reason why I like the movie Annihilation so much is because it's treated as if it is not an anomaly. It's treated like this is completely normal. We're not going to make a thing out of it. There's subtleties there with Ellie's subtly whole project is being taken over by a man who basically takes credit for her work. Do you think it still holds up? (laughs) It's interesting on rewatch because I thought some of it wouldn't. I do think for the most part it really does hold up. The most controversial thing about the movie is the ending. That's where it loses a lot of people. I gotta say I'm kind of in that camp a little bit. But as I was watching it, um, having not remembered a lot of it, the first 80% of that movie is phenomenal. And if it wasn't for some things with the ending, I think it would be considered an all-time sci-fi classic. It's obviously dated in terms of the tech. Outside of that, I think as a story, it's fantastic. What is it about the ending that you think is problematical? Well, it's two things. Beach scene is what most people remember from this film. It just felt so out of left field. I understand the reasoning behind it. She travels to Vega via a wormhole, and she ends up on a beach that looks like her childhood drawing of Pensacola, Florida. And her dad's on the beach. They're like, oh, we downloaded your memories, and this is how we're going to reach out and say hello, essentially. And that's just how we've done it for millions of years, and now we're sending you home by. I don't know. Something about it even when I was a kid I was in the theater loving it until that time and I was like wait a minute it just felt so Hollywood to me and then the whole ending with the conference scene it suddenly became a little ham-fisted I first saw it when it opened but I'll be kind to myself and say it was a bit older than you were (laughs) and was surprised it was so Mm low-key it was so low-key I actually thought I wasn't going to like it but it turned out to be a really interesting film more interesting to me than many more hyped up sci-fi films like Star Wars Mm -hmm. ask interesting philosophical questions the story is gripping it's a convincing look at how first contact might be handled. There are issues. I think the characters could be stronger. I think they're a bit flat. Mm. But overall, it gets you going and you want to know what is going to happen. What are some of your favorite scenes? The scene of her when she first hears the sound, there's something about just that sort of calm before the storm atmosphere where it takes a lot of buildup. They just found out, you know, their funding has been cut again. And so they only have a couple more months, basically. And she goes out to listen. She puts on the big headphones and she's like laying on the car. All of a sudden, she just hears this pulsing, which I think I remember reading is the fetal heartbeat that ran through a computer. So she hears this heartbeat sound. Her team is watching TV at the same time, and you see the the sound being broadcast right outside Earth's atmosphere of the interview on TV, and then it sort of gets overtaken and, and collides with the sound of the incoming signal. And then the, her rushing back, so you can just feel the tension. It's so palpable, and it's very exciting, and you, you really feel her excitement. This is what she's been waiting her whole life for. And it's just beautifully shot, these long tracking shots, and it's golden hour. I love that scene. <laughs> 
one of my favorite scenes is when they realize that the message they're getting back is from the uh, opening ceremonies at oh, the, yeah. uh, the Olympic and it's Hitler and they're going oh what do we do now? <laughs> I had forgotten about that and so when they like are zooming out of the television signal and it's a swastika I was like oh my god it's such a WTF moment. <laughs> And I don't know if you'd consider this a scene, but the opening shot of this movie, it's probably one of my favorite opening shots of all time. It's the longest opening shot special effects until the day after tomorrow. Oh, wow. They held that title for quite a long time. Right. Well, the first time I saw the film, I was so young, I didn't really understand what was going on. I got that we were zooming out of the Earth and the Earth is getting smaller and we're going through the Milky Way out of the solar system and etc. But the whole radio broadcasting, it didn't click with me until I was a little older. I was like, oh my god, of course. I also like the decoding of the extraterrestrial message when they figure out it's drawings of the machine when the millionaire, John Hurt, shows them how it all is supposed to fit together. Then of course the big scene of her going through the wormhole. The build up to that was so good, I thought too the slow walking out to the platform and then the platform retracting. She's looking at what might be the last two human beings she ever sees. Jenny Foster had a very difficult time with this scene because it's the first time she'd ever done blue screen. Of course, she wasn't seeing anything. It was all just blue screens. That's got to be a jarring transition. Well, she crushed it. <laughs> Are you a fan of the director, Robert Zemeckis? I am. Obviously, he's got some fabulous movies under his belt. I mean, Back to the Future is one of the greatest films of all time, of course. But I haven't strictly followed him particularly, just because I know some of the movies I've seen of him have been a little more hit or miss. I actually had forgotten Zemeckis directed this until I saw the credit at the end, and I was like, oh. And then it made sense. Like, there were some shots that I saw that I was like, oh, yeah, I can see it now. <laughs> First, I'd like to note that Pop Art has covered two films by Robert Zemeckis. I and Logger filmmaker Donald McKinney talked Romancing the Stone and paired it with King Solomon's Minds in episode 75. And writing coach, trainer, and narratologist Dmitry Vronsov talked Back to the Future and paired it with La Chate in episode 26. Okay. I find him a very enjoyable filmmaker. I don't think he's a great director or necessarily a particularly profound one, but he makes very entertaining films and he's made my life a lot happier. <laughs> He framed Roger Rabbit. What Lies Beneath is another one of his that I think is really underrated. He started out with two small films that both flopped so badly that he had a very difficult time making another movie. He did I Want to Hold Your Hand and Use Cars. They're both really good films, and I highly recommend them, but they bombed. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'll make a note of that. I've never heard of either of those. It was very difficult till he finally got Romancing the Stone, and that was such a success that there was no looking back. But at the same time, I've only seen one film of his since Contact, so he's not really a go-to director. I don't say, oh, Robert Zemeckis is coming out with a new film. I've got to see it. And the only one I've seen since Contact is Allied, and I thought that was a pretty stupid story. <laughs> I did not see uh, that one. <laughs> It's really a dumb espionage story. He got really into those creepy CG movies for a little while. I think his films have done well, but he's not pulling back from the CGI stuff because his next film is a live-action Pinocchio. Oh, that's right. Yes. Geppetto. But he has made important contributions in one area of filmmaking, and that is in his use of visual effects. The insertion of hand-drawn animation into live-action footage in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, 
good performance capture techniques that you can see in the Polar Express and Beowulf and the insertion of computer graphics into live action footage as in Forrest Gump and here in Contact where he did such things as insert actors into a meeting with President Clinton. I think this, the fact that it was a time of lesser technology actually enhanced it because you, so often you get the shots of President Clinton integrated with the cast shown on a, like a fuzzy standard definition television, which definitely helped it. <laughs> it made it look better than I thought it would. If you ever want to see a really good example of it, Woody Allen did a movie called Zelig, where the oh. central character, like Forrest Gump in a way, goes throughout history, inserting himself into major incidents and famous people, including one where he shows up as a member of the Nazi party. Uh, <laughs> of course he listening. would. Of course Woody yeah. Allen would. <laughs> Film critic David Thompson commented that no other contemporary director has used special effects to more dramatic and narrative purpose. Absolutely, totally agree. The screenplay is by James V. Hart and Michael Goldenberg. Not particularly household names. They did some major pictures. Hart did Hook and Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and Michael Goldenberg did Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Peter Pan, and Green Lantern. I have to be honest, there's, I don't think there's anything that special. <laughs> about them as writers but i think a lot of this has to go back to both carl sakin and his writing partner and wife and Julian. have you read the novel that it's based on no i haven't have you i started it. it it wasn't that long after the movie came out so i was probably maybe 11 or 12 i rented it from the local library and i think it was maybe a little beyond my can at that moment i remember there being a lot of techno babble which right. i just was like oh i got through the first few chapters and I just was like, oh, maybe I'll just stick with the movie for now. <laughs> he was big on researching the existence of extraterrestrial life. And perhaps his most famous contribution today is the television series Cosmos, mm-hmm. which yes. I saw when I was young and loved it. The odd thing is, I don't know whether it's because I've grown up and changed. When I saw the news Cosmos on television, I couldn't watch it. It just made me so depressed. Oh, <laughs> Do you mean in just in terms of... It just seemed to emphasize over and over again that we're nothing in this universe. And I don't think they meant to say that, but I'm just (laughs) watching it. And you're just telling me I'm insignificant and I'm nothing. And why am I watching this? Reminds me of something from the other movie, Another Earth, where they're talking about Plato's allegory of the cave. When you look outside of the cave and you watch stuff like Cosmos and you get a real sense of the scope of reality, yeah, it can be depressing. It can be freeing. I feel like I've come through that emotion and I've come on the other side of it. It's liberating. But both Carl Sagan and Andrian worked on these discs that were sent out to space. Carl Sagan worked on the Voyager Golden Record. Andrian worked on the Voyager Interstellar Message Project, which went out with Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. You can definitely see that in contact. The schematics that they're sent has a very the Golden Disk vibe with this sort of universal translator. The two started writing Contact in 1979. They had a treatment that was more than 100 pages, but the developments stalled at Warner Brothers, so Sagan turned it into a novel that was published in 1985 and then to sell great interest in the project again in 1989. And Julian said that Carl's and my dream 
thing was to write something that would be a fictional representation of what contact would actually be like. That mm-hmm. would convey something of the true grandeur of the universe. Do you think that that's how it would go down in real life? Based on how it happens here, I think that it would. They say something at one point. They don't follow through with it. That we don't know whether they're sending this as a sign of peace and just to make contact or whether they're going to use it to come here and take us over, even destroy us. Mm-hmm. The remake of the movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is terrible. <laughs> has one interesting aspect to it and that's when the person from the other planet asks why they're so afraid and she says well based on our history whenever we went someplace we conquered Mm -hmm. so it's hard for us to think if aliens came from another planet here i think it would be hard for us to think that they would be acting any differently than how we acted yeah that's true as discussed in the movie it's presented as a bad angle but they surmise like what if they're sending us a weapon to destroy ourselves but it's a valid question but ellie says i would hope that a higher level of intelligence would be beyond our first instinct of destruction Thematically, the story does take on philosophical and theological themes. Roger Ebert, in his review, said, Contact is a film that takes place at the intersection of science, politics, and faith. As Ellie's father said, if we're alone in the universe, it sure seems like an awful waste of space. What do you think they're trying to say in the film when it comes to this intersection of faith and science? You know, it goes back to our earlier comments. It's a quest for meaning. That's just such a human thing. And for millennium, people looking for why does the sun rise in the morning and go under the earth at night? Everyone's just trying to find answers and it manifests itself as religion and then and also then science. It was an interesting showing just how the quest for answers is universal. Science and religion are kind of just two sides of the same coin. Well, certainly for Ellie, science leads to truth. But as Joss points out, science doesn't explain or have the answers to all questions and all issues. It's so far, it doesn't really answer such existential questions like why is there something instead of nothing? What is the purpose of life? Is there a soul? What is love? So Joss thinks there's more to the universe while Ali thinks this is it. It's only what we can experience. It's only what science can dictate. Of course, <laughs> the problem is science does often make mistakes. Yes. So science doesn't always lead to truth or doesn't always try to find truth. There can be prejudice in science as much as in religion. Oh, absolutely. Admitting what you know and what you don't know. And Ellie, when she's doing the news conference at the end of the film, basically it's laid out to her, you admit none of this is possible. So then why are you saying it did happen? Why can't you just admit that it it probably didn't happen? And she just says, I can't. She expects everybody else to take it on, on faith. Absolutely. It really does answer a whole lot of questions. My favorite little scene towards the end with Angela Bassett and James Wood, where you do actually find that empirical evidence to support her claims. Which I don't think is in the book. She does something else. The aliens that she meets tells her to do something with Pi, the 3.12, whatever. And she tries to take Pi out much farther than anybody ever does. And something happens during that that gives her the empirical evidence. I think it's a really neat twist, though. Yeah. In some ways, when it comes to the theological perspective of whether there is life on other planets, I didn't really think that it dug very deep into that. In fact, I think in many ways it ignores the issue when it comes to very specific religion. Mm -hmm. It's possible that may not make a big difference to most religions, especially Eastern religions like Buddhism and Confucianism. But this was, to some degree, a big question in Christianity and fundamentalist Christianity, especially. Mm -hmm. Because Christianity is based on the idea that 
that at one point life was perfect and we fell because we disobeyed God. And by doing so, we passed down original sin from generation to generation. So to be redeemed by sin, God sent his only son to be crucified, within rose in three days, yada, yada, yada. And that's how we achieve redemption. But when I was young, we did ask, well, if there are other civilizations out there on other planets, what does that mean? Did they fall from grace? Are they burdened with original sin? And if so, did God send his son to die on every other planet? For fundamentalists, especially Christian fundamentalists, who were brought up believing they were the one true religion, this is a very serious question Mm -hmm. and can really tear apart the very essence of their beliefs. And we did see a side of that with the terrorist who bombed the first transport system. If this machine can prove for a fact that there is life on other planets, it's going to pull a thread in their whole worldview. It's like, well, I'd rather just kill myself and make sure that nobody ever finds the answer than knowing the truth. There was another fundamentalist in the film, and that was the person played by Rob Lowe, who isn't as against any of this. He just wants someone to go who has a belief in God. But it is interesting, they only talk about Christianity. They don't talk about any other religion. They don't talk about Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Confucianism. It's only Christianity that they concern themselves with, which I think today that would be a real issue. And then I also think that it speaks to whether it's a comment on it or it was an unconscious thing by the filmmakers about how it was so American-centric and American-centric view looks at Christianity as being the religion. The people in the White House would be thinking about it possibly only from that perspective. They do indirectly reference other religions saying 95% of the planet believes in some form of higher power. I hope within my lifetime there's some form of proof. I don't think there will be. We're alive for a blip and, and the world goes on. In real life, Jodie Foster is an atheist or agnostic. Matthew McConaughey is a Christian. Mm. Yeah, he does make it a part of his life. Carl Sagan was, I believe, an atheist, but how militant an atheist he was is debated by people. The character of Richard Rank, which is played by Rob Lowe, is based on Ralph Reed, who was head of the Christian Coalition in the 1990s. He was one of the more conservative Christians out there. I didn't realize that. In writing the script, the story made a lot of changes from the original story and even through the various drafts. And this is where we get into plot points and character points that in many ways focus more on her being female than just a scientist. Peter Gruber, one of the producers, suggested that Airway have an estranged teenage son, who he believed he would, would add to the depth of the storyline. And he said, here is a woman consumed with the idea that there's something out there worth listening to, but the one thing she could never make contact with was her own child. To me, that's what the film had to be about. And I'm going, as soon as she said, here was a woman, I'm going, you don't get it. You don't get what the movie's about. The fact that she is not then defined by her familial relationships is one of the things that's so great about it. There are some other differences in the book. In the book, Ellie's mother is alive. She remarries after the death of Ellie's father. Ellie has a relationship not with Joss, but with the president's science advisor. So they combine those two characters, which is always a good thing to do when you're adapting a book. Oh yeah, streamline. It's also more pointed that she's having a romantic interest with the religious person rather than a science person. Mm-hmm. I love that aspect of it. They're so, they're obviously their quest for answers is parallel. They're so on opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes to the thing that defines their lives and their careers, science versus religion. But you can tell they just have so much respect for each other's intelligence and drive. There's zero hostility when they have these philosophical debates. I thought that was a really refreshing approach. There are also five people who go through the wormhole in the book. Oh, interesting. I think that would have been a mess. Yes. (laughs) And I think it's 
more dramatic if there's only one person. Yeah. So it mess storytelling wise and also from a producing perspective. They're like, hey, that's four less actors we have to pay. <laughs> Roger Zemeckis was offered the chance to direct, but he turned it down at first. And he said the first script for Contact I saw was great until the last page and a half. And then it had the sky open up and these angelic aliens putting on a light show. And I said, that's just not going to work. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see if that ending had a better response than the yeah. current. Do you have a favorite performance in the movie? You gotta say Jodie Foster, right? <laughs> Her character right. so resonated with me as a young girl. I'm just colored by that perspective. Her drive and her passion just felt so palatable and realistic. It is one of these movies that are filled with all these recognizable actors. It has <laughs> this rich supporting cast. Some of them early in their careers, some that are better known now. Most of which I'd forgotten, but all of a sudden James Woods and Angela Bassett shows up. Gene Malow, William Fitchner, and Tom Skerritt, Rob Lowe. I didn't remember Rob Lowe being in this. And Jake Busey. You have John Hurt. And it is interesting that both films unintentionally seem to predict Elon Musk. Yes. Because he really wasn't based on Elon Musk, because I'm not sure there was an Elon Musk at the time the book was written in Another Earth, though he's not really a major character, and I think you only hear him once, either on the radio or on television. But he's building a spaceship to take them to another planet, and he's not uh, working for the government. So here you have Elon Musk. How did they know? I guess that's just the natural progression with eccentric billionaires. Where do you go but up? The cinematography is by Don Burgess. I think you mentioned that you really liked it, especially the long, wide scenes. Yes, the cinematography was just gorgeous. And then that famous shot of young Ellie racing to get her dad's medicine. It's a shot that's talked about in film school because the tricks of the cameras floating in and out of the mirror. It's very hard to shoot a scene when someone's looking in the mirror because the mirror is going to reflect the camera. And then there's another one of the earliest shots in the movie where the camera moves through a glass window and continues into the house pre the level of CGI we have today. Like Shots like that are incredibly difficult to pull off. The most famous shot of going through a window was Alfred Hitchcock in Psycho. Oh, right. Was that a closed window? Yes. I think there's just an imperceptible edit. Mm-hmm. But he seems to go right through the window and, and it's satirized in the movie High Anxiety where the camera gets closer and closer to the glass doors but they just go right through the glass doors and break uh, <laughs> that's great <laughs> but the cinematographer Don Burgess he worked on a lot of Zemeckis films he did Forrest Gump Castaway Polar Express he also did the 2002 Spider-Man and then Aquaman he shot the film in anamorphic format using Panavision cameras as well as using large 65 millimeter and VistaVision for special effects shots. That's for those who know what any of that means. <laughs> Not I. The music by Alan Silvestri has a more anthem type musical score. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, you know, something John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith might do. He also worked on a large number of Rebecca's films and that's actually the films he's most known for. Special effects sequence was a joint effort by eight companies. Oh, wow. Wow. Weta Digital in particular was responsible for signing the wormhole sequence 
Well, as we said, the opening scene is a three-minute computer-generated sequence beginning with a view of Earth, listening in on numerous radio broadcasts. Then it zooms backward past the Moon, Mars, other features in the solar system, then to the Oort cloud, to Alice's interstellar space, the local bubble, the Milky Way, other galaxies of the local group, and eventually into deep space. Fabulous shot. Cindy Portier was approached to play the president, but he turned it down to do another film. But after that, Zemeckis saw a NASA announcement on August 1996. He said, Clinton gave his Mars rock speech when we got a rock that seemed to come from Mars. He further says, and I swear to God, it was like it was scripted for this movie. When he said the line, we will continue to listen closely to what it has to say, I almost died. I stood there with my mouth hanging open. He didn't have permission to use Clinton. And after this, the government became a lot more controlling on uses of likeness of people in the government. It's actually against White House policy to use the president in a way that implies a direct connection between the president and a commercial product or service. Interesting. In the same way, CNN believed it was a mistake to allow the use of such on-air personalities as Larry King because it blurred the line as to how independent CNN was from Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers, who produced the movie, also owned CNN. Yeah. I did notice that on the rewatch. There was quite a lot of, now on CNN, you know, I was like, did they sponsor this movie? They would talk about that quite a bit at the time as to whether newscasters and such should be in movies like this. But today, you just see it all the time. Often you feel like these newscasters want to be in a film as themselves. For a film like Contact, especially when you're using the actual then President Clinton, it just adds a whole extra layer of realism. It makes it that much more immersive and troubling, realistic, like all of the above. Well, with that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $90 million to make and made $171.1 million at the box office. It received a nomination for Best Sound from the 1998 Oscars. This was the year of Titanic, so there was nothing you were going to do to win an Oscar there. During the development of Contact, the production crew watched Danny Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey for inspiration, and the wormhole at the end does resemble the end of 2001. Andrew Yen makes a cameo appearance as herself, debating with Rob Lowe's character Richard Rank on Crossfire. Stephen Ford, who plays Major James Russell, is ex-president Gerald Ford's son. Sagan visited the set a number of times. He helped with the last-minute reviews, but then he died and film was briefly delayed because of that, and contact was then dedicated to Sagan for Carl appears on the screen at the aid. The scene where the NASA scientists give Arrow away the cyanide pill caused controversy. Gerald D. Griffin, the film's NASA advisor, said that this never happened. However, Carl Sagan said, yes, it did. However, despite these small inconsistencies, NASA maintained the Contact is indescribably more accurate in its depiction of SETI than any Hollywood film in history. The remark made throughout the movie by different characters that if humans were the only life in the universe, it would be a terrible waste of space is a famous quote by author Carl Sagan. It references a statement by the Scottish essayist Thomas Carlyle. Considering the potential worlds of other stars, he said, A sad spectacle, if they be inhabited, what a scope for misery and folly. If they be not inhabited, what a waste of space. The UFO abduction insurance banner across an RV is from a real company. Warner Brothers paid them to use that in the movie. William Fitchner's character, uh, the blind astrophysicist with enhanced hearing, is named Kent Clark, a play on the name of Superman's alter ego Clark Kent. Character is based on a real-life blind SETI scientist Kent Colors. And according to the French magazine Paris Match, this was the last movie that Gianni Versace saw the day before he was shot and killed in front of his villa in Miami in July 1997. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is Another Earth. First, some information about the film. Another Earth is an American sci-fi film released in 2011. It was directed by Mike Cahill and written by Mike Cahill and its star, Britt Marling. It stars Britt Marling, William Mapather, George
Jordan Baker, Robin Nord Taylor, Flint Beverage. I like that name too. Kumar <laughs> Lana, Diane Sisla, Rupert Reed, and Richard Aronson. Rhoda is a 17-year-old accepted into MIT. She celebrates by getting drunk. Driving home, she hears reports of a suddenly discovered Earth-like planet that can be seen by the naked eye. When she looks for it, she hits a car with a husband, wife, and child, killing the wife and child with the man ending up in a coma. After release from prison and not sure what to do with her life because of her great guilt, she tries to make amends with the father now out of the coma. But instead of telling him who she is, she ends up becoming his maid, and as their relationship grows, she enters the contest to take a spaceship to visit the new planet, which seems to be identical to her. Before starting with the film proper, we might talk about the idea of hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. Basically, hard sci-fi focuses more on scientific accuracy and logic. The term was first used in print in 1957 by P. Shirley Miller in a review of John W. Kendall's Islands of Space in the magazine Astounding Science Fiction. Complementary term, soft science fiction, first appeared in the 1970s. And that has two different definitions. It can refer to science fiction that explores soft sciences, psychology, political science, anthropology, as part of hard science fiction, which explores the hard sciences, physics, astronomy, biology. It can also refer to science fiction with prioritizes human emotions on the scientific accuracy or plausibility of hard science fiction. Though, of course, these are not hard and fast, and they will often bleed into each other. And so here we have both the hard science fiction and a soft science fiction movie. Mm -hmm. I'll give some examples of hard science fiction. That would be 2001, Colossus Forbin Project, Moon, The Martian. Then for soft science fiction, we have 1984, The Handmaid's Tale, Children of Men, Dune, Melancholia. What do you think makes contact maybe hard sci-fi and what makes another Earth soft sci-fi? First instinct would be whether it's more of a plot-driven or story-driven narrative. Contact, even though it's, it's populated with a lot of great characters, it's a very plot-driven story. What if aliens made contacts and how would that look realistically? Whereas it seems like the soft sci-fi is much more character-focused and in dealing with people's emotional states. And what makes it sci-fi is just elements in the periphery. Right. Another Earth never really deals with the scientific aspect of this world. No one in the film asks how and why it appeared, how and why it approached it. And how it got into an orbit with the Earth, and how and why it seems to have no effect on the Earth when it comes to gravity and tides and atmosphere. It sort of takes those as unimportant questions. And you're right. So it deals more with people's reactions. It's even more of an existential film than the first one because it asks an absurd question, this planet appearing. But it's more focused not on how or why. It's more focused on how people react to it mm -hmm. once they accept it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that they just let the audience fill in the gaps of, of the questions of the how and the why. and Or even just saying that it doesn't really matter how it happened. <laughs> right. It's basically what people call you either go with it or you don't. Yeah. What did you think of the pairing of the two films? Watching one, I watched Contact and then jumped into another Earth. I thought it was a, an excellent choice for pairing. There was just so many thematic parallels. They complemented each other really nicely, but they're so different in just the story. They still felt really hyper-distinct from each other. Good job. Well, they do have some interesting things in common. As I pointed out earlier, they both seem to have Elon Musk characters before Elon Musk was Elon Musk. They both have female leads. They both deal with trying to meet aliens or at least another planet. Also, they have things like both have blind people who are more insightful mm -hmm. in many ways than the one around them because the Native American janitor in the school is blind and then he also deafens himself by pouring bleach in his ear based yeah. on something that's never revealed but he just hasn't been able to forgive himself for. They both also have this element of people with a traumatic loss in their life 
then turning to the sky for answers to fill that void that has been left behind. Coming full circle with the human connection all along next to you, that is the thing you're looking for. So this was the first time you saw the film, correct? Yes. And what did you think? It was a really interesting film. To me, it almost had the vibe of two separate scripts that were written that got zippered together. I didn't actually look to see what the story was behind this. Got to parts, especially when you're diving into Rhoda, the lead character, her cleaning the house of the man whose family she accidentally killed in a drunk driving accident, where I actually forgot the whole general premise of the movie. Because I got so caught up in that story that all of a sudden when she gets the call about the, oh, you're SA-1, you're going to go to space. I was like, oh, right, that's what this is about. I think you make a very good point there. It's one of those films where they had this idea. We'll have this Earth planet, this exact duplicate of Earth, show up. That's a great idea. Now what do we do with it? So they come up with this story that you're right, may not quite fully satisfactorily fit the premise. It does seem a little, as you say, zippered together. So I certainly couldn't argue that. The themes, the big existential questions, is what holds those two seemingly conflicting ideas together. Because you do realize that they are sort of interwoven in a way that's not readily apparent. I think it does ultimately end up working, but it is a little bit of a jarring juxtaposition at first. Well, I saw it when it first came out, and it was one of my favorite films of the year. And I consider it one of the best sci-fi films since 2001. I did a list on my blog site listing my favorites uh, of the new millennia. And like Contact, it it is somewhat low-key and in many ways even very simple story. It's not big, flashy movies. It's people feeling a sense of emptiness looking for answers. Do you have any favorite scenes? I thought the ending was great. Just that last shot. It's always hard to land a movie, especially when you've got one that's sort of meandering and melancholy the way that this one is. But I just thought that last shot where she sees the Earth 2 version of herself waiting there to talk to her. I was like, oh, that's so great. (laughs) That's also one of my favorite scenes as well. But since you've mentioned it, we might as well talk about it now. And how do you interpret that? What do you think that means? You know, that's a great question, because she mentioned that when we first spotted it, that's when we split and became divergent stories. So it seems like everything that happened on Earth 1 also was happening simultaneously on Earth 2, just like a mirror image. But then the observation is what then sends the synchronicity out of control, which is also not totally explained. But, oh, in that world, then she had a different life. She Maybe she led to her full potential. I think basically you're on the right track. For me, what it means is that she gives the ticket to the father because if once they observed each other, then at that point, there's no longer necessarily synchronicity, then his wife and child might be alive on that other planet. Since Earth's two father didn't come to Earth, but she did, for me, that means that, yes, she didn't have the accident on Earth two. She didn't hit the car. She didn't kill those people. And so there was no reason for the father to come to Earth and I thought it was a very beautiful ending. Well, it was a great image. It did lead to a question where I thought, wait, so if his family's all still alive on Earth too, and he shows up, <laughs> oh, that's going to be a little bit of an awkward situation. To yes, awkward. I also like the scene where they first make radio contact and she starts asking questions of the person, of herself at the other end. That was really fascinating. That had the same energy to me as getting the Hitler broadcast in contact. And you're just like, what is going on? And then that definitely showed that the synchronicity was no longer the same. Otherwise, they would have been asking each other the questions at exactly the same time. There was a really clever way to communicate the whole every single thing was identical 
even down to the names of the places and the people and the memories and the actions. You're talking about the observation of the two planets and how that affects things. And that reminded me, and I'm not a physicist, I find this fascinating, but I'll probably get it wrong, that often when you're observing atoms and when they're sent through something, they act totally different when you observe them than when you're not observing them. Isn't that a Schrodinger thing, that the act of observation affects the outcome of the experiment? Yes, yeah, really weird. Nobody quite, they may by now, but when it was first observed, no one really understands why are just observing these atoms would make them act differently. And then when we're not observing them, they act in a different way. It's like the two Earths are just two Petri dishes staring at each other. The director was Mike, Mike Cahill. Are you familiar with him? Or have you seen other films of his? I don't believe I have. It's really strange. I think I have, but I don't remember anything about them. This oh, is the only one I remember anything about. But I do think I've seen I Origins and then another film with Britt Arling as well. But I can't remember. Huh. Looking at his filmography, I really don't think I've seen any of his other movies. So, so far, I'm not sure he's making a big impact as a director. This seems to be the film that he's made the biggest impact from. He is very good at giving a film a certain mood. Some people found it slow. I didn't. It is a slow burn, but I found it fascinating. I, I was <laughs> with it the whole time. It was, yeah, I was there too. I like a good slow buildup, and that's not for everybody. But that sort of looming, like you know something is going to happen both in terms of the sci-fi elements and personal elements like that tension of when is she going to tell him the truth about why she came to his door that one day and that scene where she's going to tell him they filmed it in such a way that it, you question what's going on when she breaks the news to him that she's going to go to earth too and he Amelia's like let's pour drinks and he pours a drink and like shoves it in her hand and he's like now i'm going to cook for you and you've got like the cutlery out and she takes a sip of the wine and she pauses for a second almost like the wine tastes funny but it's all these sort of misdirects of oh is he poisoning her did he find out is he going to kill her is he crazy like <laughs> i had this real sense of impending doom over that scene one of the reasons to study this from the director Mike Cahill and as well as Brent Marling is for new filmmakers who are trying to get their first film done. Um, Cahill had made two films before this but they were both documentaries and Cahill and Marling wanted to make a film that was going to do something for them. Marling was starting to get someplace in acting, but she was afraid that she was going to be something like always the best friend in a horror movie who gets killed. So they decided, well, we're going to make a film. And it does have a grainy documentary look to it. It's obviously digital. It's not flashy studio filming. It cost $100,000 to make. Oh, wow. It was filmed in and around New Haven, Connecticut, but this was Mikey Hill's hometown. And I always tell new writers... When they asked, should I move to L.A.? I said, no, you should make films where you are. And then you've got some made, maybe then move to L.A. Because by making it where he lived, he could get help from local friends, from his family. This reduced the budget. He used his parents' home, his childhood home, uh, as Rhoda's home. His bedroom is Rhoda's room. This, Yeah, the scene of the car collision was made possible because he had a friend on the police force. So the policeman cordoned off part of the hideaway late at night. The scene in which Rhoda leaves the prison facility was filmed by having Marling walk into an actual prison post as a yoga structure and then exiting. Huh. Yeah, it's very resourceful. So new filmmakers should really study films like this to find ways of making their film. Oh, yeah, and especially when this movie came out 2011, was it? Even just That's now, right. yeah, everyone has a film-quality camera in their pocket. It's even easier now to make use of your tools that you have in your location. Well, you know what they say. The great thing about making movies today is anybody can make a movie. The most awful thing about movies today is that anybody can make a movie. Yep. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
But I think in many ways, the, the movie looks very interesting, is this screenplay that the two of them wrote. It's also a male and female writing partnership, like uh, Carl Sagan and his wife. And it started out with the two of them speculating as what it would be like for one to encounter one's own self. So they decided to do it on a bigger scale. And so let's have a whole complete duplicate Earth. So the Earth encounters its own self. I loved how they mentioned at one point something along the lines of, if you could objectively look at yourself, what would you do? And that's kind of that idea it's a earth exactly like your own but you can observe it from an objective point of view and it's like what would you really think of yourself and humanity and both films do set up existential questions in the area of what does it mean to encounter another race or beings from another planet contact deals with these questions in much more detail they don't really resolve them but there's never really an answer to these questions you can get more insight but here they set it up but they never really deal with that that they're dealing with different existential questions here but it's interesting because in contact they deal with religious questions but here this world this earth too well they're going to have the exact duplicate set of religions and myths that we have mm-hmm. there's nothing really to talk about there yeah which is interesting yeah because it does bring up the question that contact poses about other life out there but it is the same so i guess it's like oh well i guess it is the same gods you know <laughs> <laughs> So I guess it's reaffirming in a way. Or does it mean the opposite? That if it is an exact one, does that mean there is more likely that our myths about gods are true or it's more likely that they're not? because it's just a duplicate of Earth. That's one of those questions that I feel like, depending on what answer you want, you're going to be able to interpret it however you want, please. Ebert commented that another Earth is as thought-provoking in a less profound way as Tchaikovsky's Solaris, which is another film about a sort of parallel Earth. You said something interesting, because I was going to ask, what do you think they're trying to say? You said something interesting that also resonated with me and that I thought about, is that when you observe yourself that's when you can start making decisions Mm -hmm. but when you're not observing yourself then things are just going to go along so when earth sees earth too and they're aware of each other then they start going on different paths they start making different decisions and that's the same for her is that once it went on different paths each of the rotas were able to make a different decision mm-hmm. they never had to go down that same road and once you're able to look objectively at yourself that's when you sort of that's when you can change things that's it's a really cool metaphor or it could actually be they weren't really focused on trying to say something but thought this <laughs> is idea and let it go where it goes we won't try to define it which is also a perfectly valid way to yeah. make a movie yeah leaving it a little bit open for interpretation there do you have any thoughts about what the movie means or what they're trying to say one thing that i thought was an interesting divergence from contact was that contact seemed to have a theme of we all ask questions we all want to expand our knowledge we just have different methods of doing so whereas this one it seemed like the parallel between wanting to know what's on the other earth wanting to look at yourself objectively and get answers versus the people that want to do the opposite the people in the cave versus the people outside of the cave the janitor he intentionally blinded himself and then intentionally deafened himself because it was he mentioned something earlier in the movie about trying to find a clear mind getting rid of all the noise his thing was the less i absorb the less i know the freer i will be i can be more my own pure self the question felt more like do you want to know the answer or do you not want to know the answer do you have a favorite performance 
I thought it was a overall well acted, but we really only see in any real capacity the two main characters. And you have her family and the brief pops of his family. I, I thought the, the two leads both did a really good job. But they did work very well together and they did give very solid performances. The writing was really strong. It felt very real in terms of the emotions that were being conveyed. It's one of those premises that feels like it could just be a gimmick, but the acting, the directing, the cinematography, I thought was all really suited the story. It's more visually focused film. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of dialogue, Mm -hmm. uh, which is very different from Contact, which has a lot of dialogue and uh, a lot of discussion, a lot of conflict over the themes. Mike Cahill, who directed, also did the cinematography and editing. Mm -hmm. And it looks, of course, very different from Contact, which is very, I think you said Hollywood feel to it where his is a more of a gritty documentary feel to it. It's very mm-hmm. odd that when we see a film with this sort of jittery kind of camera work, though people may not like it, we think it's more realistic. When in reality, we never see life isn't jittery. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. The idea of the unprofessional handheld cam is so deeply ingrained with us that we think the less like reality it looks, the more real it feels. The music is by Fall on Your Sword. Of course, it's very different. It's, it's much more electronic. It's more moody it's more psychological it seems more to try to portray the emotions of the people involved the music in contact was more trying to convey the emotions of the movie and the excitement of the plot and what was going on yeah you know it's interesting you mentioned the music because i don't even remember the soundtrack of another earth i think almost it's a compliment because it was integrated so well into the visuals aspects that i didn't realize i was listening to a soundtrack I felt all that tension and i felt all those emotions well i I guess if I were honest, I would say that I did listen to the soundtracks of both of these while preparing notes. So (laughs) I don't always remember what the music is like until I listen to it separately. The only part that Fall on Your Sword didn't write was the musical saw scene that was composed by Scott Munson and performed by Natalie Peruse. Mike Cahill came upon Peruse, known as the saw lady, while riding the subway in New York and mesmerized by her playing. He arranged for her to coach William Mapather on how to hold an act as if he was playing the off in the scene of the film. That's a lovely scene. The symbolism of it was really cool and maybe I'm overthinking it, but just the whole taking this instrument that is designed to destroy and split things, literally. And it's very violent and aggressive. You're getting a peek inside of his soul that is coming out of something so aggressive and it just parallels with his real life of spiraling after this act of violence that killed his family. Well, with that, here's some more information about the film. It cost $100,000 to make and made $1.9 million at the box office. It seems like a huge success. The only thing I'm not sure is that Fox Searchlight bought the distribution rights for $1.5 million. So I guess that's like $400,000 profit for them. So I don't know how you interpret that. It's not uh, very good. I don't think very good for Mike Cahill, but Fox Searchlight might not have been it's quite as happy. Another Earth won the Alfred P. Sloan Prize at the 2011 Sundance Film Festival for focusing on science or technology as a theme or depicting a scientist, engineer, or mathematician as a major character. Another Earth was named one of the top 10 independent films of the year at the 2011 National Board of Review Awards. This was one of two dramas released in 2011 where the appearance of a new planet in Earth's vicinity is of major importance importance to the characters and plot. The other one is Lars Ventura's Melancholia. When Rhoda speaks with United Space Ventures CEO Keith Harding, Harding makes an offbeat comment that his headmaster once told him, you'll either become a millionaire or go to jail. This is a reference to Richard Branson, who was told the same thing by his headmaster at school and also owns a pioneering civilian space travel company. 
with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. One which you actually mentioned earlier was Children of Men, the soft sci-fi. It's a more about the human response to a removed event, the emotion you know, that comes with scientific things. But an amazing movie, beautifully shot, fantastic direction, all of the above. And then the other one closer to Contact would be Deep Impact a year after Contact and it was one of those parallel films alongside with Armageddon I guess in the same way as Another Earth was parallel with Melancholia super grounded look at what it would be like if there was an asteroid impact I was always team deep impact I saw them in theaters as a kid I went a little overboard, but I will start with a television episode. Season one, episode one of The Outer Limits from 1963. It stars Cliff Robertson as the owner of a radio station who accidentally makes contact with a being from another world while researching electromagnetism and microwave background noise. Explorers is a 1963 sci-fi film from director Joe Dante in which a very young Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix built a spacecraft to explore outer space and in so doing make contact with an alien race that there is a twist to these aliens they meet 2001 a space odyssey is for me the greatest movie ever made it was recently covered on pop art episode 77 with filmmaker adam Vinish, where we combined it with tarkovsky's masterpiece solaris it tells of earth coming into contact with a signal from an alien race in the form of a large black slab and this is rare for me but i am including a film i have yet to see it's journey to the far side of the sun from 1969 the reason i mention it is a lot of people mention it in reference to the movie another earth it revolves around this of a planet lying directly opposite the Earth on the other side of the sun that seems to be a duplicate of our world. And I'm not a huge fan of Dutch filmmaker Lars von Trier, but Melancholia is one of his most accessible ones. It revolves around a planet entering our solar system that seems to be on an exact course to collide with the Earth. And finally, I mentioned this next one because Mike Cahill says it had a huge influence on another Earth. It's Christoph Koslowski's 1991 masterpiece, The Double Life of Baron which is about two women who don't know each other but are doppelgangers. One is in Poland, one in France. Their lives are connected in ways they will never know. This is one of the great films, along with 2001 and Solaris of all time. I got a lot of movies to watch, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> what is next? What should we be expecting from you? My next thing coming out is uh, as of yet untitled Netflix series starring Arnold Schwarzenegger that is currently in production. Was that fun? <laughs> it was very surreal writing for someone who is such an icon of the planet. There's certain ubiquitous people that just to find the zeitgeist of an era. No idea when it's coming out yet. It'll be within the next year. And then also season two of Reacher. Season one's up on Amazon now, and season two, we're just wrapping up the writing right now. We're really, really excited and, and proud of the upcoming season. Well, I certainly enjoyed Reacher, my kind of series. I love mysteries. All is my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations, and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rentings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader, and I am an amateur photographer, and you find those on Instagram. The previous episode is with filmmaker Adam Binish, where we discuss the aforementioned 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, which we combined with Solaris. The next episode will be with writer-director animator Glenn Dion, where we 
will discuss Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and Kind Hearts and Coronets, two films about someone getting rid of their rivals one by one. So with that, I want to thank you, Kate, very much for being a guest on my show. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me.